Welcome back to another week of Autastic, a uh, two-parter of a two-part series. This is two-part of a two-part, second part of a two-part wow. series. You are having uh, trouble. My name is Kirk Smith, and I have a fever of 100, and the only cure is more cowbell. Uh, I've had a fever for 20, 21 days, and it's driving me bananas. Yes. How you doing, Graham? I'm doing better than you. Uh, I am younger. That's not saying much. Um, <laughs> yeah. Kirk is recovering, though, so don't, you know, but send him your messages. Send him your messages. He has the COVID, and uh, wish him wish him better. But he is good enough to do this podcast, which feels, which is good. It's good to, good to see you. Good to see you. You're still sweating. Better than last time we did this. Better. Well, last time we did this, you were up in Adam 2 for episode one of this podcast, of this uh, interview, but the two ago. No, no, no. I meant that one before you were telling about. Yeah. yeah Go ahead. Yeah. But anyway, this is episode two of the wonderful Jill Escher interview with Lee Wachtel, MD. If you have not listened to episode one uh, of this interview, definitely go back, check that out. Uh, this is a, got a lot, it's a it's a it's a denser interview. That's uh, only because there's lots of information, lots of pertinent information, and let's face it, we're all in a pandemic. You're at home. You got time to listen. And they could help you. Could help you and your kid. Uh, so we're gonna throw to Dr. Lee Wachtel, MD, who is the medical director of neurobehavioral unit at the Kennedy Krieger Institute in Baltimore, Maryland. Did I get that right, Kirk? I think you got it, buddy. Roll it. Um, so let, let's go on to the antipsychotics and then I'd like to talk to you about sleep a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so antipsychotics, particularly like atypical antipsychotics, um, we use, um, very frequently, um, both for, uh, both as kind of a standing dosage, um, whether that's for behavioral or mood stabilization or a combination of both, but then also it's something that can be pursued as kind of a rescue option. And, um, and again, I would point out that like a large number of our patients are already on antipsychotics. Um, risperidone and Abilify, because they have the FDA approval, are probably the most commonly prescribed. That's not to say that they're necessarily like the only ones or the best ones, but they seem to be the most commonly prescribed. And I think that we tend to like to have a child on like the lowest dosage that allows for like reasonable behavioral control or affective stability um, in normal times. But um, those medications, in addition to conferring affective and behavioral stability also do have a sedating property. And now would certainly be the time if you're having a lot of difficulty and your child was on a lower dose of risperidone or Abilify to look at increasing the dosage. Again, especially in these times when we're really operating through like a telemedicine venue and we want to avoid or, or limit the chance of like exposure to like additional side effects. So if your child is already on medication um, like that, that's been helpful and you know that your child's able to tolerate that, then increasing one of those medications um, would be probably be like a good first step. Um, so we use like the range of atypical antipsychotics, um, typically risperidone, Abilify, Olanzapine, um, Seroquel um, on a pretty regular basis. 
And I think that those medications have um, a lot of benefit for patients in terms of not only the affective and behavioral stabilization, but also getting back to that idea of kind of like lengthening somebody's fuse or giving them a little bit more like ego glue so that they don't go from like zero to 60 in five seconds. Mm-hmm. And um, typically we like with a lower dosage. Um, Definitely those medications can be associated with um, more side effects that require monitoring. Probably the most immediate side effect that would require monitoring is the risk for development of any abnormal movements. Then typically you see those in the face. Children or do do you see the development of ticks also in um, teens and adults? Oh, for sure. We see it like across the lifespan. And definitely people with autism and intellectual disability are, have many more like idiosyncratic and unusual responses to medication. So it's even more common to see those side effects in this population, which makes like monitoring really, really important. Um, I think some of the like longer term risks associated with atypical antipsychotics, um, to, particularly the way those medications can change how your body um, metabolizes glucose and cholesterol and uh, may predispose you to gaining more weight or having an increased appetite and usually not an increased appetite for like mushrooms and tomatoes, but for like carbs. Um, those are things that um, we definitely monitor on a longer, on the kind of a longer term basis. Um, but not something that would need to, again, those are like, if that happened and it helped you get through a difficult time, those are things that you don't have to have monitored right now, but could be monitored more on like a long, more on like a long-term basis, particularly after the worst of the crisis is over and it becomes more safe to go to a lab. Although some um, and, people are and monitor those. about like development of male breasts, for example, something that might not be reversible, I think with, with something like Risperdone, but, um, I, I don't know if I know it depends on on the particular case that that's not across the board. Yeah, well, so of the atypical antipsychotics, so it's risperidone is associated with um, what's known as um, hyperprolactinemia, which basically means that the um, levels of prolactin, which is the same like um, endocrine factor that is elevated after a woman gives birth and then um, causes breasts to like enlarge and produce milk. Um, that can happen with um, risperidone. It doesn't happen with the others. Um, definitely doesn't happen with Abilify. And Abilify actually can be used to counter that problem with risperidone. Uh, yeah, I mean, that is a risk. It can happen. Sometimes it's hard to distinguish um, development of male breasts, particularly in adolescent males, because sometimes that happens anyways in adolescent males, particularly adolescent males who are like not the thinnest. Um, and so, so yeah, sometimes that does happen. Um, it, that I, I guess, you know, it, it really comes to weighing, if you think of like a scale, the risks and benefits and the need to get through an acute situation um, safely and safely, safely for everybody. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, we might be stuck in this situation for a f- number of months, but it's not a situation that's going to last forever. Yeah. And um, so let me ask you yeah, this. So- that- one one provider was suggesting for my son um, Seroquel PRN, which, which means as needed. Um, is that something that that you've done or you, you've seen done? So instead of giving it to him every day, give it to him only when, as you said, when you need to lengthen that fuse, right? When you think he needs to develop more time before he explodes. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think those medications can definitely be used um, for that purpose. 
one of the issues becomes really like the time of onset. And so if you give a medication that has to be like swallowed, um, you're typically waiting for like a longer um, time period of onset. And some of those medications really do work best when they're used consistently across the day. So you're building up like a more stable substrate. Um, that being said, um, you often use, um, risperidone comes in something called an M-tab that you can put on your tongue and is, um, is like a dissolvable. And then, um, Lanzapine is sold um, as a dissolvable tablet known as Zytus, Z-Y-D-I-S. And um, Zytus is actually something that's used um, often in like emergency situations, even in yeah, actual emergency departments um, before using like Haldol because um, the Zytus also it's like a sublingual and is rapidly absorbed and that medication can confer a um, significant reduction in acute like agitation in um, in somebody who's pretty much who who's out of control and olanzapine is also pretty sedating and so again like do we want our kids to be sedated not on everyday basis but if it's you know between that and your head going through the wall then yeah we'll take sedation because sedation will like wear off whereas your head through like the, the sheetrock might be a bigger problem yeah I, I could have used that for my son recently let's be honest um, I don't like medicating him at all, but we were in an absolute emergency situation and I'm like, you know, like, where's the, where's the miracle dart, <laughs> you know, just to keep me from breaking a bone. Um, okay. So, uh, I just want to, want to move on just a few more questions. We, we have to, by the way, this is really great information, a great overview of, of these different classes of medications that really might help some, some families. So sleep has been a big issue. Um, a lot of uh, families are kind of locked down at home with a kid who doesn't sleep. My son, for example, um, was prescribed, um, uh, what's it called? What's the most common sleep medication? Uh, trazodone. Um, and it seemed to help quite a bit, although he had to go up to kind of the maximum dose pretty quickly. Um, what, what, do you, what do you tell parents who are looking for help with sleep? So there are lots of options for sleep. Um, I think, you know, the first thing we always review with everybody is kind of all those sleep hygiene things in as much as possible, trying to um, preserve some of the like, standard tenets of sleep hygiene. Okay, well, I just throw that out there. And I know that, like, you know, depending on some people have a lot of space to roam around in, some people don't. And, like, being in lockdown can make that really difficult. But it will be harder for your child to fall asleep at night if they're able to hang out in their bed all day and, and you know, watch their iPad. Um, in terms of medications, so there are loads of options. Again, you might think I'm kind of harping on like being parsimonious about medications, but if your child is already on a medication regimen and um, it's type of medication like an antipsychotic or an anticonvulsant or other medication that has some sedating properties and it is safe to um, load the medication so it's favored towards the evening, oftentimes that's a trick we'll do, particularly with kids who are on anticonvulsants, if they can get a third of the dosage in the morning and two thirds at night. Again, that'd be something you definitely want to review with your neurologist in advance. Um, sometimes you can take advantage of already harnessing some of the sedating property of that medication just by shifting a little bit more towards the evening when, when you're happy for your kid, to, for your child to be sedated. Um, there are lots of options for sleep. Um, we'll often start with melatonin, which probably, I guess, most people listening to this podcast would think that's just like giving your kid water or M&Ms. Um, some people do respond to um, melatonin, though, and if you haven't tried it, that's definitely um, worth a try. 
Um, other things that we use for sleep, um, trazodone, um, we definitely use on a regular basis for sleep. Um, the main things to watch for with trazodone would be that unfortunate development of priapism, which is the erection that doesn't go away and not the enjoyable type. Um, so that is a respect, uh, something to monitor for in um, boys. There is no female correlate to that. And then spillover sedation. Um, many patients do really nicely on trazodone. And even though it's not a great antidepressant, it was developed initially as an antidepressant, so it does have some antidepressant benefit. You might get some additional kind of wrangles, some additional benefit out of it. Um, again, other things. So some other ploys that we'll have, we use, um, actually have recently used um, Neurontin a fair amount in patients for sleep. So Neurontin or um, Gabapentin can be a really nice agent um, helping kids get to sleep at night and also can be um, have a lot of anxiolytic effect. Sometimes our patients will do well on Neurontin um, at night for sleep and then we'll also add a little bit during the day. It helps a little, little bit. Um, anxiolytic, with we're gonna, anxiolytic in um, plain oh, English would be? Sorry, like reducing anxiety, yeah, overall be. reduction. Anxiety. I'm sorry, I sort of like lapsed back into my lingo. Nisi, my mom was done, you need to go now. No problem. Okay. I'm sorry. No, yes, no problem. Okay, back, back to um, where, where oh, were we? Okay. Um, I don't know. The video has like disappeared now. Don't worry about. Can it. you still? Okay. I can hear you. Go um, ahead. You're doing great. Okay. So yeah. So no, we were talking about neuron. So I actually yeah. really like neuron. Helps a lot of our um, kids get sleep, and um, you know you can start at like 100 milligrams at night and then go up. Um, and usually, that's also a medication that's really well tolerated. Another thing I like about neurotin is that it's one of our few psychotropic agents that's metabolized by the kidney. The large, the most psychotropics are metabolized by the liver, and so since you have a different metabolism system, it's automatically much less risk for um, side effects and drug-drug interactions. Um, so um, we like, we will use Neurotin a, a fair amount. Um, another medication, a kind of a newer idea that we'll sometimes try is a medication called Silenor, which is an old um, tricyclic, it's doxepin in a very low dosage. And it was actually repackaged and remarketed a couple of years ago to harness the sedating properties of tricyclic antidepressants without the associated risks of their use in much higher dosages. Um, that's also something that kind of like an unusual idea, but something that we've seen benefit like a lot of patients. Um, then other things that we'll use for sleep, I, I don't necessarily like to use antipsychotics as the only option for sleep. So if we've tried trazodone, if we've tried Silenor, gabapentin, um, we've tried the alpha agonists like clonidine and Intuniv, particularly loading the dosage or using um, both the long-acting and the short-acting versions of those medications at night to get the child to sleep and help him stay, to stay asleep. Um, it definitely otherwise would not have any problem considering addition of um, 
an atypical antipsychotic to help with sleep at night. Um, probably the ones that would be most beneficial with, with sleep of the that class would be the, the risperidone, quetiapine, um, olanzapine. And again, a lot of our kids are already receiving a low dosage of those medications or a higher dosage and optimizing or increasing the dose particularly if you need to get your kid to sleep for the benefit of everybody, I think is a, a perfectly fine option. Great, um, thank you. That's a, that's a lot of information for people to digest. They're all gonna be going on Google to look up all of these uh, these medication names. Um, tell me, oh, <laughs> it, it's a lot, but everyone's gonna have a little mini MD after this. Uh, after this interview. Okay, we, we are almost out of time here, um, but I did want to ask you about telemedicine and how people can access um, you know, the doctors who can help them during this time, especially, first of all, as you know, it's hard for a lot of us to bring our kids into the office anyway. I mean, getting my kid to the doctor is like a Herculean effort. So, um, uh, what what do you recommend, especially if people don't already have a practitioner um, who's, who's working on these types of medications? Um, is, is this something now that's standard um, that people can use telemedicine? And what if they have to have labs done before, you know, they take a certain medication, et cetera? What, what's your general uh, approach here? So um, I think that one of the like maybe small silver linings to be found in the COVID crisis, particularly in our community, is that it really has opened up a lot of options for telemedicine that probably wouldn't have been available otherwise for another like three to five years based on all the like insurance and also cross state line regulations. And um, we've actually found that telemedicine can be an awesome option. Um, well, for a lot of people, but particularly for our patient population, because in general, like our kids are not so thrilled about going to the doctor's office. They are usually not really happy about having their vital signs taken and all sorts of people, you know, in their face. And um, sometimes it's actually more difficult if the child doesn't want to be there in the first place to really get a good idea of what's going on in the office if, um, if things are just escalating further. And understandably, parents are oftentimes in kind of a, a frazzled state trying to manage a child safely and talk about what's going on and get help. So um, a, a lot of hospitals and outpatient medical systems and private practitioners have really moved towards um, intensifying their telemedicine efforts um, with COVID. And that was actually helped along by the fact that a lot of the regulations that prevented people from pursuing that more robustly related to like billing and um, documentation have been relaxed by the um, federal government, including some of those cross state line regulations. So um, I think that it's a really wonderful like option to pursue. And I think that, you know, psychiatrists and mental health providers are very happy to have that option available to them because it's something that, you know, we can do um, really in many cases as like intensively as we were doing previously. I mean, I have some colleagues who work only in outpatient and are doing Zoom sessions from eight in the morning to five in the evening. Um, and I think that it's important to, if possible, to do it via with a with a video venue like Zoom or whatever the facility is allowing um, people to use. Different facilities have different regulations, but we've actually had some patients who don't have access to um, internet or a video connection, and have even done like been able to do phone discussions. 
So it does become a problem in terms of getting like baseline laboratories and issues like this, which somewhat ties our hands in terms of selection of some medications. Um, but again, that's all like, you know, has to be weighed with how likely it is that there might be, you know, side effects X, Y, and Z versus how desperate is the situation to be brought under control. So would I want to start somebody on lithium, like without any baseline laboratory work? Mm, no, probably not. But a lot of our other medications really with like kind of cautious implementation and ongoing follow-up, I think they're, you know, it's very reasonable to manage those with um, telemedicine. Got it. Yeah. So um, definitely, I think people should contact their practitioners to see what might be done under these uh, harrowing circumstances now um, you know, to use technology to access uh, the care that they might need. Um, Dr. Wachtel, you know, you are a hero to those of us who live in the severe autism world, and we greatly appreciate everything you do at Kennedy Krieger and also the advocacy work that you do for our population. And now, for example, today, um, a lot of education and public outreach work that you do um, while caring for kids <laughs> at, at home and a very big patient load and um, some of the, the most um, significantly um, challenging, you know, patients um, really in the country. So, Dr. Wachtel, thank you so much for making your debut on Autastic, and um, uh, we really appreciate it, and we hope to have you back, hopefully, when the epidemic is over, and we can talk about other things. Well, that sounds great. Thank you so much for having me, and again, I do apologize for the little brief interruption. Oh, it happens all the time. You know, we have an autism audience. We're used to it. So, <laughs> all right. Thank you. Stay safe. Best wishes to everyone. Okay. Thank you. So, Kirk, um, I'd like to say one thing is I know this is sort of pushed towards more uh, young people higher on the spectrum and also mm. not even just young people, but people higher on the spectrum. But I will say mm. that my brother is on antidepressants and he wasn't always. And before he was, he was violent towards my mother. And now those episodes have completely ceased. So, Oh man. Yeah. It's like we're it's like you're reading my mind. That's what I was going to talk about. Yeah, same same with my son. It was like I felt like he got on the the uh, mood stabilizers, the, the antipsychotics, maybe two years ago. Mm -hmm. But uh, if I had to do it again, I might have done it sooner because he had a few episodes where he'd like accidentally broke Lorena's ribs or bruised Lorena's ribs, oh and it was, that was like that's his mother. Yeah, as a that's yeah, as a yes, yeah, sorry, his mother. That was a frustrated situation. You know, you don't know what to do and no. It's so yeah. frustrating because they're in it. It's really it's a strange feeling because someone has created a aggressive, violent act, but is also completely innocent at the same time. Yeah, or or that's the struggle. Are they completely innocent? Right. What's going on in there? But yes, yeah. that's the struggle. Mm -hmm. It's hard to punish people for autism, but you can definitely punish them for beating up their mom. <laughs> so it's that's a tough one. That's a tough one. So yeah, he and. And I remember approaching the doctor when uh, when he um, he when when he uh, was becoming when when they sorry initially prescribed the antipsychotics and I was not very comfortable with it and you know I just feel 
you know, some of the side effects are, what if you hear voices? Well, he doesn't talk, so right, I don't right. know if he hears voices because he won't be able to say that. Right. And so then the doctor was like, well, I've prescribed this to over 2,000 people with autism, and we've had really good success. So this isn't like just somebody prescribing a, wee, a dream catcher or like a, you know, some bleaching people or something crazy. This is actual something that people do that they've had good experiences with, and there's science behind it. And so I would say something to consider if as your young autistic person becomes older if there's violent uh, aggressive issues absolutely absolutely and um and did, would you would you say that you would wish that you had pres- had him prescribed earlier than than what happened when you did get him prescribed yeah i think a couple of years earlier might have been good you know as as at least as he got bigger than her he's about I don't know, six foot, six one, maybe two forty. But once he hit about, his mom was like five two, so once he hit like, she used to tell people she's five four, she wasn't. <laughs> but uh, once you hit like, <laughs> uh, once once he got like bigger than her, you know, like sixteen, fifteen, and there was some violent tendencies, that might have been the time. If I had to do it again, that's one of my regrets. I would have done differently. Well, the, uh, did we do it? We did it, guys. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. Sorry I sound like I'm on death's door, but uh, yeah. I feel better than last you week. Definitely, you seem better. I'm glad you're feeling better. Once again, you can donate at patreon.com slash autastic. Don't feel obligated to, obviously, if you are out of work due to this virus. Uh, but we are as well. And uh, every little bit helps. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you can uh, contact and follow Kirk Smith on all platforms at Kirk Smith Comedy. I'm at Mr. Graham K on Twitter and Instagram K on Instagram. And uh, that's that's it, right, Kirk? That's it, guys. Have a great week. You can do it.